So uh, I am always curious as to what people are reading, and I asked a friend uh, late last year what he was reading, and he said that <clears throat> once again he was rereading the first 100 pages of Les Miserables. So Les Miserables is Victor Hugo's epic novel, sort of this uh, contrast between a life that is lived under law and a life that's lived under grace. And, uh, and it is, uh, Les Miserables is French for the miserable or the poor, or the, you know, the oppressed, something. So it's those who are being pushed down. And uh, he said, uh, I reread these first hundred pages of the novel uh, almost every year. And he goes, I'm asking myself the question, how could I become more like the priest? So as you may know, if you know the story, and most of you do, you may not have read the novel, but you've seen one of the movies, there's, uh, there's like 30 of them that have been made, or you've watched the musical. And the musical's great, um, we've seen the musical a couple times, but uh, just FYI, the musical leaves a lot out. Uh, you get about a third of the story, uh, excuse me, you get about two-thirds of the story if you read if you watch the musical or watch a movie, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that is developed in the novel. And in particular, there's a hundred pages that are given to the spiritual formation of the priest who is the one who is so gracious to Jean Valjean when he's caught stealing. So remember, it opens, Jean Valjean, the protagonist, has been in prison for 19 years. He stole a loaf of bread to help his sister's starving child have food. And he was arrested, and then he kept trying to escape, and so he ends up serving 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread. He finally gets out, and he can't get a job. And so he's going from village to village trying to get somebody to hire him, but no one will hire him because he's an ex-con. And so uh, one night, the priest, he knocks on the door of, the, of this church, and the, the priest, who's a bishop, uh, says, well, you know, I'm not just going to give you food. Come in and sit at my table. You are my brother, and, and they have this nice meal. He goes, you can spend the night here. Well, in the middle of the night, uh, Jean Valjean uh, gets up, and he steals all the silver, uh, all of the silverware, and he makes a bolt for it. But the police quickly catch him, and they bring him back to the priest. They said, we've caught this man stealing your silver. And the priest says... I'm so glad that you went and got him for me. And then he turns to Jean Valjean and he says, you left some of it behind. And uh, why did you leave this? You left the best parts behind. And he gives him the silver candle abras. And he says, like, I, am, I am being gracious to you. What you deserve is back in prison. But this is, this is God. This is God being gracious. I am buying your soul for God. So it's a powerful scene. I want you to watch 90 seconds of it from one of the, uh, one of the musicals. Let's go ahead and run that. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best? Behind. Monsieur, lass ihn gehen, was dieser Mann sagt, trifft zu. 
I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for This is my uh, my favorite novel ever. If uh, if you haven't read it, I would commend it. I, I googled it; it would take you 30 hours and six minutes to read it. Uh, so that that might be a good 30-hour investment, better than whatever Netflix is streaming uh, in 2023. And uh, I, when I first read it, uh, I, this was 30 years ago. When I first read it, when I finished the book, I wept. I'm, I've, I've grown a little softer in my old age. I, I cry a little bit more now. I don't cry a lot, but I cry more now than I did then. I was shocked that I was crying, but I was so moved. First of all, I was sad that the novel was over. It is so good. But, but I was so moved by grace, right? It's, it gets contrasted so effectively with law and God's grace and what that is and how hard it is for us to understand grace. So uh, I am on the lookout for a painting of the candelabra because to me it's just such an ongoing reminder of God's grace extended to us. So I asked my friend what he's reading and he says I'm rereading the first hundred pages of Les Miserables. The question I'm asking myself, how can I become gracious? How can I become like the priest? What did he do? What was he, how was he formed in order to become this gracious person. So I was a little shocked because I'm thinking, wow, I've never thought about that. I've never noticed that. And so I went back uh, and I'm rereading the first hundred pages and I'm stunned at how much is in the novel developing the character of the priest. And it, it got, me, got me wondering, <laughs> what else am I missing in the novel? But what else am I just missing? What are we missing in stories we think we know? What are we overlooking? So uh, this is a great question for us to ask right now as we begin this 20-week series on the second half of the Gospel of John. So as you likely know, there are four accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament, and they're not biographies in a classic sense. We call them gospels. The word gospel means good news. And they're written by the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Evangelists are those who tell the good news. These four accounts of Christ's life, there's no mystery here. They tell us why they were writing these and what they want us to get. What they want us to get out of the gospels, what the gospel writers are saying, this is what you need to be paying attention to is that Jesus is God. He is the Savior of the world. 
He is the, the Messiah. He is the promised one. And that the life you want, life now and eternal life to come, the life that you want comes through Jesus. So they, they take different approaches to this. So Matthew is writing, most of them are Jews, it's a Jewish story, but Matthew is writing for Jews. And so he opens his gospel with a genealogy that ties the gospel of Matthew into the Old Testament, very clearly. Same people, right? This is how you understand. This is a Jewish story. It's a continuation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Luke, we spent five years going through Luke a couple years ago, uh, uh, finished a couple years ago, Luke is writing for Gentiles. So it's a Jewish story, but he's writing for non-Jews. And he writes a historical account, and he tells us he's writing uh, for this guy, Theophilus, who we think is uh, a Gentile in the Roman court. And he's trying to persuade uh, Theophilus to come to faith in Christ. So Mark, uh, shortest of the Gospels, probably written first, is, seems to be ad addressing Romans. A little bit more of a simplistic. They don't have the philosophical backdrop of some of the other uh, people groups back then. But then John, and we're going to be in John. John is writing for the Greeks. John writes much later. Uh, so he was the youngest of the apostles. All the others have, have been martyred. They've died. John was supposedly punished to death, but he didn't die, and he ends up now banished. He's on an island called Patmos in the, uh, the Mediterranean, called the Aegean Sea area of the Mediterranean. And uh, towards the end of his life, he will write a gospel account, and he's writing to the Greeks, to the Greek philosophers who, for whom things have not worked out. So Greek philosophy, I've talked about this before, it sort of becomes a, it's a failed project. They can never quite figure this out. They can never get their answers to work out. And so he is going to write for the Greek philosophers. And he opens his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word, the logos. This is a Greek word. The logic, the answer, the, the piece that you're missing. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So what we get in the first part of John is we get all these proofs, all these arguments, all these illustrations that Jesus is God. So the Gospel of John actually breaks into two books. You have the, the book uh, of signs, and that's John 1 through 12, and then you have the book of glory, and that's John 13 through 21. And so we're going to pick up next week in John 13, and that is all, John 13 through 21, all of that, the book of glory, is all about the last week of Christ's life. So in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called Synoptic because they follow a very similar outline, sort of synonymous. In the Synoptic Gospels, a third of the Gospels are given over to the last week of Christ's life. In John, half of the Gospel is given over to the last week of Christ's life. So in the book of Signs, in the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John, you get all these arguments that Jesus is God. So he is called the Word, he is president of creation, he is equal with God, he is eternal, and you got all these titles, he is the Son of God, he's the Son of Man, he's the Jewish Messiah, he's Lord, he is the light of the world, he is the Lamb of God. you got all these big titles, he is the I Am. 
Uh, you got all those in the first part of John. You've also got Jesus displaying uh, amazing authority in his teaching, and then Jesus demonstrating authority in miracles. He demonstrates authority over sickness and over death and over evil and over nature. So by the time you get to the end of John chapter 12, you are alert to the fact that Jesus is God. And now there is this pivot, and Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem, and you're going to get the last week of his life started. We're going to pick up right after the triumphal entry, where Jesus has paraded into Jerusalem, uh, and all the people have said, Hosanna, right? And he's sort of put, he is put on notice. Uh, the Romans, Pilate, who's there fearing an insurrection, uh, against Rome. He's put on notice the Romans and, and he's put on notice the Jewish religious leaders. He's got all this uh, influence right now. So Jesus is, Jesus is going viral. Uh, he's had three years to sort of build his crowd or build his platform and now uh, his blog posts are being read. He is, you know, when he tweets out, everybody's following him. He is, he's, he's an influencer and he's coming into Jerusalem at that point and we're going to pick up, I'm going to read uh, the passage that was read, is out of the last part of John chapter 12, and then uh, we're, going to, we're going to, uh, next week, pick up with John chapter 13. So, just a little bit of, by way of housekeeping, um, we're, going to, we're going to cover John 13 through 21 in, in 20 weeks. So, when we did Luke, that was like five years, so this is, we're moving a little faster through Luke or through John, than we were through Luke. The first 12 uh, chapters, I'm actually covering a lot of that in the morning devotions. Those are, if you, get, if you get those, if you don't get those and you want those, five days a week, we've got a morning devotion, and uh, that's going to be coming out of John chapter 1 through 12. So a lot of arguments there, explorations about who Jesus is, because that's John 1 through 12. And then when we hit uh, when we hit Lent, because of course all of this is being unfolding to uh, to land at Easter, right? So so we are wa- we are walking through the last week of Christ's life, and it will end with Easter and the week after Easter. When we hit uh, Lent, which starts with Ash Wednesday, so then there's 40 days. It's a little bit more than 40 days because you don't count Sundays, but but you get the 40 days of Lent. We will have uh, additional uh, sort of resources for you to walk through Lent, corresponding all that with the, the Gospel of John. So uh, today, again, we are, uh, we are picking up at the end of John 12, right after the triumphal entry of Jesus. And just so you know, Jesus' popularity would ebb and flow over the three years that he has got a public ministry. So when he's healing people, when he is feeding people, when he is performing miracles, when he's besting the Pharisees in their little religious scuffles, right? His popularity goes up and the people are there. And, and then uh, they look to him and say, teach us something. And he says, okay, uh, the way up is down. You got to serve other people. You got to die to self. If you want to follow me, uh, this is, you got to go all in. This is going to be hard. And people are like, Oh, yeah, no, we were here for the free lunch, and so they, they leave. And so the crowd sort of, it, it ebbs and flows, but it's building over time because he's traveling throughout the whole region. 
you know, every village is sort of different, and, and he's traveling, he's teaching, giving the same stuff, but so his, his, his pull ratings are sort of generally growing uh, up and down, but now he's coming into Jerusalem. This is the culmination of his popularity, and uh, we are picking up at that point in John chapter 12. I begin reading with verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. Now this is surprising because the festival is the Jewish Passover, which is a, you know, it's the thousandth year plus that they have celebrated, remembering that God led the Jews out of Egyptian captivity. Angel of death had come. They, they, you know, uh, Jesus was now the culmination of that story. We'll unpack all that as we go through, but but it's the Passover festival, sort of a patriotic Fourth of July religious festival, holy day. It's a Jewish holiday, so it's a little surprising that there are Greeks there. But remember, John is writing to the Greeks. Right? He wants to persuade Greeks to put their faith in Jesus, so he mentions the fact that there were Greeks there. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. So Philip is an apostle, uh, and he was from Galilee. So Galilee is north of Jerusalem, and it's a much nicer place to be from. And Jesus spent most of his time in Galilee. So if, if you've been to Israel, if you've been on a Holy Land trip, then uh, you understand this, but one of the surprises people have when they get to Jerusalem or when they're basically in the second bottom half of Israel, they look around and they go, why do people care about this land? Like, who wants to live here? This is, it's, it's not, a, not a place to live. Now, if you want to, the nice place, all the former prime ministers of, uh, of Israel, they all go north. They're all in the Mediterranean, right? They're in, you know, Tiberias. They're in Tel Aviv. They're in, they're in, in those areas. Jerusalem is not a particularly, you know, attractive geological, uh, meteorological place to be. So I, this week I was listening to a podcast, an interview with uh, a, a British historian, Sebastian Montefiore, and he wrote a book called uh, The History of Jerusalem, and it's, you know, thousands of years of history that he's covering, and the first question they're asked is, so why is Jerusalem the most contested real estate on the planet? Like, I mean, the Dome of the Rock, you know, the, the Temple Mount where, the, where used to be the Jewish Temple, where the Muslims have built uh, their third holiest site, the Temple Mount, the Dome of the Rock, that's the most contested, most valuable, most sought-after piece of real estate on the globe. And the question is, why this space? Why Jerusalem? Like, why is this, why is this such a prominent city? And uh, Montefiore says, well, um, it's because it's holy to three great religious traditions. So Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all, all say this is, is in one sense sort of ground zero. Then he goes on to say, he goes, there's, there's really no other reason. So Jerusalem is up on top of a mountain, and so it's got some defensive um, advantages if you're living, you know, Two, three thousand years ago, but uh, 
there's no water. And so it's a, it's, it, 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 there's very little water. It's not a great place to be. It's a, it's a land designed to cultivate faith. Because if it doesn't rain, you are in deep weeds really. Well, you're not in deep weeds because there's no weeds. Nothing's growing in Israel at that point. So, uh, so Jesus is no dummy, right? I mean, he spends his time in Galilee, uh, as do a lot of the apostles. Uh, Philip is from Bethsaida in Galilee. And uh, these people come. They, they come to Philip and they say, hey, sir, um, we would like to see Jesus. So, so he's obviously one of the gatekeepers, trying, people trying to get to Jesus. And Jesus is now the guy, right? He's the, he's the one. Everybody's talking about Jesus. They want a, some sort of backstage pass to be able to ask Jesus questions. And so they say, uh, uh, we want to see Jesus. Now, it's almost a given that they do not understand what, a, uh, what an inflection point that statement is. Because if you're actually going to see Jesus, if you're going to be with Jesus, if you're going to meet Jesus, if you're going to hear from Jesus, it's, it's not likely to go well. It's going to be very disruptive. Because Jesus doesn't simply claim to be a nice guy teaching people to be nice. He makes big, huge claims. And when you listen, if you read the black words after the red words, and if you've got a red-letter Bible, if you read the black words after the red, red words, oftentimes people are like, what just happened here? What, what did he say? Are you kidding me? Like, Jesus makes these big, disruptive claims. And uh, so they want, uh, they want to meet Jesus. And so they go to, they go to Philip and they said, can, you, can we get to Jesus? And, uh, and Jesus is about to tell them, as we'll see, you know, okay, the way forward is through suffering and death. <laughs> and you're not just a spectator, you're going to be a participant. And that's where we're headed. So Philip goes to tell Andrew, another apostle. Andrew and Philip in turn uh, tell Jesus. And Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, this is big news because if you've been reading through John up to this point, what you keep hearing Jesus say is, It's not my time. It's not my time. It's not my time, right? You know, you got this, Mary says to Jesus, take care of this wedding problem. They're run, running out of wine. And Jesus says, what? It's not my time. This is, I'm not, this is not supposed to be happening yet. So you got all these things where Jesus is saying, not yet, not yet, not, not exactly. Now he says, it's time, right? Game on. Here we go. And he then says, uh, that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, it's worth noting that the, the term Son of Man is the way Jesus refers to himself most frequently. And it is a big, bold, disruptive claim. It, it, it sounds, I mean, if you don't know anything, then you would think claiming to be the Son of God is a, is, a, is a bigger claim than claiming to be the Son of Man. That's not, in fact, the case. So it, this, this reference to Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. 
There Daniel says, uh, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. This is a vision Daniel has. With the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. Okay, so this is, this is God the Father is the Ancient of Days. Son of Man, Jesus is saying, this is who I am. With the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So presented to God the Father and to him, so the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. <laughs> so in other words, the Son of Man is the one to whom all power, all authority, all glory for all people everywhere, always, is going to be given. So when, when Jesus uses the term Son of Man to refer to himself, the, the, most people don't know what he's talking about. The people who do, the religious leaders who do, they tear their clothes. They say, you can't say that. You can't claim to be the Son of Man. This is blasphemy. And that is what Jesus is claiming. And so uh, people come to him and say, there's people here that want to see you. And Jesus says, okay, it's beginning now. It is time for the Son of Man, referring to himself, to be glorified. Now the term glorified is curious and interesting and, and, uh, and, and, and not well understood because uh, the next thing that he says as he is explaining being glorified, being glorified, he says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So in other words, he's saying, I'm going to die, right? This is, it's now time to be glorified. I'm going to suffer and die. <laughs> Which, okay, just, just try and imagine this is a conversation you're having with your friends. Hey, Jeff, so-and-so wants to see you. And their response is, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he gives this, this statement about if a seed uh, doesn't fall to the ground and die, it remains a single seed. I mean, this is weird, right? This is, this is a weird moment that is going on. But Jesus is setting in motion uh, this suggestion that everything throughout the Old Testament, everything throughout his life is coming to a climax. We're going to see that as it unfolds through the last week in his crucifixion and in then his resurrection. And part of what we look at when we're trying to ask the question, like what am I missing in the story? What have I missed in the past? What does it look like to have this life of Jesus? What does it look like to follow him? Part of what we have got to wrestle with is this whole idea that the way up is down, which he develops, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount. But this idea that suffering has purpose. So, I want to be clear about something, uh, and, and this, this will be, this is not crystal clear as, as we walk through the final week of Christ's life. It's clear in the end, and it's clear if you're reading everything in the Bible. Jesus is not simply our example, but he is our example. So, Jesus is also the Word of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the One. He is the eternal God, very God of very gods. 
His death on the cross is something that doesn't have to be recreated. It does, we don't have to die. Once he dies in our place as the substitute, as the Lamb of God who is slain to take away the sins of the world, we don't have to follow him in that. However, those that completely fall off the, the, you know, the, the, the horse on that side often miss the fact that he is our example. And we are to serve. We are to go to the end of the line. We are to understand that his service to others, while it doesn't have to be recreated on the cross, while we're forgiven through his shed blood and that's a finished work, we need to understand that following Jesus involves dying to self, serving other people, going to the end of the line. Right? It, it, it involves this sacrificial life. And that a lot of that is hard and is suffering. So, in The Brothers Karamazov, another big epic novel, written by Dostoevsky, and by the way, if I'm motivating you today to read some big, you know, classic novel, go to Les Mis, don't go to Brothers Karamazov. It's a hundred times easier and more enjoyable to read Les Mis than it is to read The Brothers Karamazov. But, in the Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky has an epigraph. So the, the page before the novel starts, where the author will often have a quote or, or sort of a passage or something that, that they're actually expanding on. In the Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky has Luke 20, 26. And it is, right, that unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will remain a single seed. But if it dies, it will be a hundredfold. And it is, so, so basically Dostoevsky is setting us up to say, I'm going to be exploring that idea of suffering and death and trials and hardship as a path forward. Right? So that's what you get with the brothers Karamazov. And, uh, and, and, and we're going to be looking at that as we try to figure out what is this life? Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and might have it abundantly. What does this abundant life look like? What's the path we take to become more like, not just the priest in Les Miserables, but to become more like Jesus? So um, there is uh, a lot that is going on in this. And uh, I will simply note a couple things as I wrap up and we prepare to come to the communion table. In uh, the last verse of this, uh, in the last um, passage here, 2026, 20, Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servant also will be. He is headed now into the final week of his life. He is going to suffer. He's going to be crucified. He will rise again. But what he's saying is, if you're a follower... Like if you're in, if you're part of the, 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 the team, like you're, you're planting your flag with Jesus, then we follow Jesus in a number of things. So one of those things that gets set up here is baptism. Right? So there are two sacraments that Jesus establishes as visual sermons, as, as, as uh, ways that we publicly are identifying with Jesus Christ. One of them is to be baptized. We're having a baptism that's going to come up uh, in March. 
It will actually be here at this campus. All the campuses will be participating, but not just all the campuses. We're, we are uh, coordinating this with lots of churches in Lake County. So it'll be a uh, Sunday night, March 19th. It'll be a worship time and a baptismal time, people being baptized from all different churches. So I'll just say, uh, you know, as Jesus is throwing down this challenge of if you're with me, if you're going to follow me, then you got to follow me. One of the things that will be held up down the line is to be baptized. It is a public identification with Jesus. We go, we're identifying as you go into the water, you identify with Jesus in his death and then come up out of the water identifying with Jesus in his resurrection. There's more than that that goes on in there. I think it's a, I think it's a sacrament. I think there's a blessing involved. But if you have not been baptized, if you're a Christ follower and you've not been baptized, you're in this no man's land that just doesn't really exist in the New Testament. People who follow Jesus get baptized. The second sacrament, and that's what we come to now, is the sacrament of Holy Communion. And uh, it is at this Passover festival that Jesus, on the Last Supper, at the Last Supper, is going to turn the Passover celebration that the Jews have been following for forever and ever, is going to turn this into Holy Communion. At the Last Supper, this celebration changes as Jesus identifies himself as the Lamb of God. The Lamb that was slain and the blood posted on the, above the homes of the Jews that are in captivity in Egypt. And, and so you know that an innocent person, an innocent blood has been shed so the guilty people can go free. That is just a placeholder for Jesus and it all comes back to his death on the cross and we remember and celebrate that when we come to the Lord's table and we're going to do that now. So this, this series begins uh, now. There's lots of moving pieces. It will carry us through Easter. And uh, we are looking to identify with Christ, believing that it is in Christ, in, in Christ, in our salvation, and in following Christ as our example that we come to the life that is life, the life that is abundant. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that... Uh, you are gracious to us. And in ways, just as captured in the, that lame is scene where the priest is doing the shocking thing of not having Jean Valjean punished, but actually is blessing him and giving him a, a blessing when he deserves punishment. That is us. We deserve to be punished for our sin, and yet you give us blessing. We thank you for your grace. Lord Jesus, we thank you for dying in our place and that that doesn't have to happen again and that our moral debt is paid through you. And we pray now as we begin this, uh, this series that we would better understand and identify with the call to be a disciple. Meet with us now as we prepare and come to this table. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.